0: So certainly, listeners to the New Discourses podcast, people who pay attention to me, are, are going to be aware that something has gone wrong in discourse in the United States, in America, and more broadly around the world. Um, most of the English-speaking world has sort of this same problem. You know, I focus a lot on wokeness, if you will, for a name for that problem, and I want to try to shed some light on where this problem is coming from in, in, a, in a different way than I have so far. Usually I just talk about the details of how the woke ideology thinks or I might talk a little bit about the uh, way that the woke ideology operates but I want to kind of talk about what the woke ideology is and the vacuum into which uh, it came into being so that we can kind of understand Not just what's going on, but where we need to start thinking if we want to climb out of the woke hole that we're sort of stuck in. So several weeks ago, some of you will remember, I'm sure, that I put on Twitter that I had had some kind of an epiphany and that it really shook me up. And a lot of people asked me what it was and I kept saying that I wasn't ready to talk about it. I wasn't ready to talk, but I needed to think about it. Well, this is kind of time to talk about it, and I'm still a little bit unsure where this is going to go. But I want to kind of develop this idea um, and get it out there so that people can start thinking about it because I think it's very important and it's very crucial to understanding what's going on, how we think about what's going on, and what we might be able to do about what's going on. So the Epiphany, to put it as simply as possible, was that human beings think in stories. This isn't some groundbreaking epiphany, but it's a, th- there's a difference between when you know something and when you get it. And so I really connected with this idea that people think in stories. And in particular, what I connected with is the idea that people contextualize themselves and their societies in terms of stories. In other words, the things that postmodernists were criticizing, the metanarratives that define um, kind of broad societal stories about stories, or a context in which all of those stories fit, or a mythology that kind of grounds all of those stories and ties them together. That's really how we think, and that's really how we see ourselves within the context of a society, within the context of thinking about ourselves even, and and figuring out who we are, what our self is, and who it is in the societies we live in. And so what I actually really stumbled upon was that I think we've been telling ourselves the wrong story about America, so therefore Americans don't know how to contextualize themselves, they don't know how to deal with their society, they don't know what to do with the society that they've built, that they've succeeded in uh, rather tremendously, and that they live in, and that this is the fundamental nature of the problem. Um, To give you a very kind of brief overview, I think that we tell the American story wrongly, I think that for a variety of factors that we could speculate about, one of them being that it's been core to our education over the past 50 years, or certainly at least the last 30 years, that we have mistakenly believed that the story of the United States was a story of equality. Inequality is not a problem. In fact, it's good. It's in fact one of the crowning achievements of the United States thus far, of Western liberal democracies thus far. It is kind of the fulfillment of of the Declaration of Independence and Constitution in some sense, but that's the problem. That's the problem. It's the fulfillment of a story that started in the late 18th century in very confused circumstances, uh, almost paradoxical, almost self-contradictory circumstances, and has progressed. And then somewhere in the middle of the 1960s, we could put a date in 1964 with the passage of the Civil Rights Act. We had the success of the civil rights movement come to fruition and in a sense, fulfill that story. And there's a problem when your story is fulfilled, and that problem is that you don't know what the next chapter is. And so if you contextualize yourself in terms of that story, you don't know who you are anymore. And if your nation contextualizes itself in terms of that story, it doesn't know who it is anymore. And then you're in a very vulnerable place because you don't have that core that you can lock onto and always come back to and say, you know what? Whatever's going on, this is how I'm going to understand it. This is how I'm going to make sense of it. This is how I'm going to contextualize it and myself in relationship to it. So a lot of times when we have, if you think of kind of the story of the United States like a, like a novel, um, when we have a really great novel, a really groundbreaking novel. It you know you read the novel and it finishes. You could think of the Lord of the Rings, for example. This is a very great novel. It was kind of the uh, it's the first big essential fantasy novel. And then what happens is that that novel inspires an entire genre. Uh, we call such novels that come out of that genre fiction. So they're fiction that's written within a particular genre of thought. And when we have really great novels, we tend to write genre fiction. We like the themes of the story. We like the characters of the story. We like the ideas that led to the story, the archetypes within the story. And we want the story to continue, even though the story ended. You get to the end of the novel, you have this kind of, I don't know, almost petite mort, and you just wish the story kept going. And we see this habit, for example, uh, very, very vividly online. It happened especially in the wake of Harry Potter, with fan fiction, where people want to tell more of the same story. They want to understand more of the same story than is in the actual canon. And so you start to spin off genre fiction. Well, the problem with genre fiction, and not to say there's anything wrong with genre fiction, but the issue that arises within genre fiction is you can't tell the same story. Not exactly. If you were to take a story like Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is a proper, if you haven't read this as an adult, it is a properly psychologically horrifying novel. It gets a lot of short shrift, but I read it a couple of years ago for the first time. I didn't ever have to read it as a teenager, and I, I was just kind of shocked at how deeply into my head it got. And so you have this concept of the vampire, this undead being that with tremendous power and all of these uh, really scary Things happening around, around him, and you know, he seems to be able to travel. He, death is, is around every corner. He seems to be able to get into your head. He seems to be able to get in through your window. And the vampire story really has taken off. Um, and so, in the wake of Dracula, we have things like Interview with a Vampire, in uh, which which is a beautiful. Also, I like this story the interview with a vampire now, you have vampires who are kind of like this hidden society, kind of almost a secret aristocracy. And you have some vampires who don't want to be part of what they consider to be this evil thing. And they do things like eat rats, blood, or animal blood, because that's like the equivalent of being a vegetarian. So now you have these vegetarian vampires that behave differently. And they have this respect for people rather than just a scary monster like Bram Stoker's Dracula. And then you end up with this, um, you know, the whole Castlevania for, for my gamers out there. I grew up playing Castlevania and so now you have the vampire hunter becomes the key thing. You know, you, you have the, the idea at the end of Bram Stoker's Dracula, not to spoil it for anybody, but but Dracula doesn't come out well. Uh, so there becomes like the genre fiction on that. And so you, you, I remember the Castlevania uh, video games, you, you you have this story being told that you're climbing through this castle, you're fighting these various monsters from, from the, the literature, from the horror literature of mostly, I guess, the 19th century, and finally, you know, you, you fight and destroy Dracula, and then it gets more complicated. You know, the second Castlevania game, you have to kill, you have to go, like, gather all the parts of Dracula, because you didn't really kill Dracula properly, so you have to go get his body parts and kill him again. And so you can kind of see how the genre fiction goes. Then you have the Symphony of the Night game, which is a brilliant game with beautiful music and and just really, really creative game, where now you're playing as Dracula's son, who's like this rebellious, um, usurping son archetype or motif. And rather than going through uh, as a vampire hunter, you're now going through as uh, this kind of, I don't know, vampire, anti-vampire thing. Um, this same kind of theme was picked up in the 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 Legacy of Cain series of other video games. It got very interesting. Um, I think that was on PlayStation or something. So, in in those you have this idea that you have this guy turned to a vampire, and the main thing that he wants is to get revenge on the vampire that turned him. But he's still this like bloodthirsty, angry thing. So you're st- telling the same story in different ways. And eventually you end up getting into something like Twilight, where now you have a, basically kind of a rewrite of Romeo and Juliet, and you have these weird vampires that are hundreds of years old and have all these fun powers or whatever, and they basically look like and act and go to school as teenagers. And um, rather than you know being destroyed in the sunlight, uh, which another genre fiction in Vampire Land was Blade, a film where, where Blade was the Daywalker, where he was the one vampire that wasn't destroyed by being out in the sun. Well, now in Twilight, you have vampires that sparkle in the sun. That was very controversial. And so you can kind of see that you as you progress through iterations of genre fiction, they get sillier and sillier in some ways. Not to say that somebody couldn't come up with some new novel take on the vampire that's very exciting and very interesting, but the probability that you're going to land in some silly stuff starts going up. Um, you could take the classic slay the dragon story, for example, and you can turn to Tolkien, who I already raised as an example. And you know now you have this hobbit who goes and steals from the dragon, and awakes his ire, and then the unlikely hero puts the arrow into him, and all of these. It's a the, the dragon slaying story changes. You can think of another dragon slaying story where now you have like the good, beneficent dragon that's actually doing wonderful things for uh, the world or society and the evil knight goes and kills them. So you can start to see how genre fiction takes various themes and changes them or inverts them, or various details and changes them and inverts them. So my contention is that we have very erroneously, at least for the last 50 years, and maybe it was before that, but I'm not so sure, uh, convinced ourselves that the correct story, the novel of America, is the novel of equality in particular racial equality uh, but equality across the board and as I said the problem is that that novel ended in some real sense in the 1960s which was a long time ago now 50 some odd years 56 57 almost years ago for the Civil Rights Act if we take that as kind of a bookmark uh, or book end I guess for the equality story And what's happened since is genre fiction on the equality story. We have started to take the original themes and invert them, turn them over. And I want to make, in fact, the case that critical race theory in particular is a direct inversion of the equality story of America. And I don't have to work to make this case. They make the case for me. All I have to do is read to you one paragraph from... Richard Delgado and Jean Stefancic's textbook this basic textbook in critical race theory which bears the title in fact critical race theory and introduction and very near the beginning in the introduction introductory chapter i should say to this book we encounter the following paragraph the critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, setting, group, and self-interest, and emotions and the unconscious. Unlike traditional civil rights discourse, which stresses incrementalism and step-by-step progress, Critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. That's a quote, that's a paragraph out of a fundamental basic textbook in critical race theory that is considered standard issue. And it is also an expression that the entire point of critical race theory is to do an inverted uh values piece of genre fiction on the equality story unlike traditional civil rights discourse then they go on to say we're going to question the foundations of this of, of the liberal order that created civil rights discourse we're going to question at its very foundations equality theory legal reasoning or the rule of law really enlightenment rationalism which is whereupon liberalism came and neutral principles of constitutional law. This is genre fiction on the equality story of America. It is an inversion of the usual themes to try to write a new civil rights story. So we have become confused and convinced that the true story of America is in fact the civil rights story that we started out at this Claim that we have equality, that we have this vision of equality for all people, and yet the people who wrote that claim held slaves and grappled with it. And they did not end slavery when I suppose they could have in principle. Politically, maybe not. Socially, maybe not. But we're not even talking about the idea that they thought maybe the nation isn't ready to get rid of slaves. They themselves weren't ready. To get rid of their slaves. So there's this fundamental contradiction to the equality story that they wrote. They wrote the engine of liberalism that was destined and has proven to fulfill the equality story that they wrote to generate equality for people. All people. And yet they themselves were a contradiction to it and it took 70 some odd years till 1863 when Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation to actually even end slavery. And then till 1865 with the passages of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution to make sure that slavery is, is completely banished from the United States. And even then it wasn't like we had equality. We got rid of slavery. We certainly didn't have equality. And we had all of these segregation laws, we had these Jim Crow laws, we had these brutal, legally enforced, institutionally enforced mechanisms of racism. Equality was not happening yet. And it took a further 101 years from 1863, or 99 years from 1865, to get to 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed and we finally ended officially sanctioned institutional racism in the United States. That's a long time. That's a lot of contradiction. That's quite the story, the abolitionist story, the civil rights heroes' stories. These are some of the most inspiring stories we tell ourselves, each other. They're a shining jewel of what America stands for and is and has accomplished and what its liberal order, which is based on things like equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment, rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. Is based upon. So we have this very, very interesting situation now, where we have this profound paradox at the founding of the country. It leads us to telling, uh, to, to to fighting for equality as a core object, and much of what we've studied in the history of the United States, depending on all the different things that we could have been studying since as long as I've been alive, anyway, has been this path of. We made this Declaration of Independence, we wrote this Constitution, we were kidding ourselves about the promises of equality within them, and it took us 70 some odd years to even get rid of slavery with the the contradictions of the founders right there in plain view. And then it took us another 100 years to even get rid of institutional, legal institutional racism. And then, of course, racism didn't just stop. There was still, obviously, social and cultural racism. There were still ways to find institutional mechanisms that could be racist and to apply racism because people didn't just magically change their mind overnight. But I contend that as a result of recontextualizing the American story in this way, we have put ourselves in a position Where we are telling ourselves the same story over and over and over again even though it has been largely fulfilled and this has forced us to tell genre fiction on it and this genre fiction is either some kind of a weird uh look how great america is with a kind of a blind eye to its its failures in this regard or it's this complete values inversion thematic inversion and critical race theory um so this is this is I think important to understand that what's happening right now is that we have told ourselves the wrong story of America, and we're retelling new versions of that same wrong story because it's in a sense the only story we know. It is the most important story about what it means to be American for most, or many at least, Americans. All of our heroes, when I was growing up, all of our great heroes were, were, were the civil rights heroes. It was all about silver. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate civil rights. Of course we should. It was one of the best things that we've achieved. It's one of the greatest testaments to liberalism, the liberal order itself, to rule of law, to enlightenment reasoning, to neutral principles of constitutional law, to equality theory. But we've been telling ourselves this story like it's the whole story. So I want to suggest that if we were to start Looking back and figuring out that we've told that that what we think is the story of America for many people today, which is that equality story, that's only one chapter or maybe a few chapters at the beginning of a much bigger and broader story that was laid out from the very beginning. And so, of course, we can try to figure out what the American story really was, and then we can try to figure out what's going on in the world today. And hopefully, I can convince you that the thing we need to be looking for right now, and I have some suggestions about it, is the American story. And it doesn't just have to be America, because it's the story of liberalism. It applies in the UK, it applies in Canada, it applies in Australia, it applies in every liberal democracy in the world. So there are many parts of this story. So if you may if you'll tolerate me for a minute, I'm going to read directly from the opening of the Declaration of Independence, which is where the American story in some very real sense began. It's when we decided that we were no longer British colonies. we were going to be this new thing. This American experiment began here, in the words of Thomas Jefferson. So the unanimous declaration of the thirteen United States, Here we have this idea that we're, we're going to lay out why we were going to become a separate nation and do a new experiment in in politics. Really, the liberal experiment, in some real sense, at the it really began here. And the first thing they say after this is, or Thomas Jefferson says after this, is. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So here's our equality story. It's the first thing they say. No wonder so many people think that this is the thing. And then you add in the paradox. And of course, everybody fo- focuses on that. And that becomes the thing that everything else gets washed out afterwards. So here's our equality story. It is the first thing. We hold these truths, but that's plural, not just one. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So these are the truths that are being held self-evident, not just that all men are created equal, but also that they have unalienable rights as human beings. And among those, but not limited to these, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So there is, in the American story, already the idea that human beings have rights that cannot be alienated by governments. They have a right to life, they have a right to liberty, they have a right to pursuit of happiness, and they have other rights beyond these. This is part of the American story. It's not just equality. And if you look around the world, this isn't the case everywhere. And it hasn't been the case most places in most times. So becoming kind of the keepers of the flame of unalienable rights, of what it means to be a free person, is part of the American story that goes beyond equality. Equality is really, in a sense, a first step toward this. But they go further. Jefferson writes further that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Our rights don't come out of the ground. They don't come out of the sky. They are secured by our governments because they are inalienable to human beings. That's the view. And the people are what give the government the right to secure those rights for them. So it is, it is people requesting that their government secure their rights to take the steps necessary to protect their ability to have life and liberty, pursuit of happiness, and whatever other inalienable rights are the province of all men. This is another part of the American story. And again, if you look around the world today, and if you look around the world historically, these aren't common. So a, the very idea that somewhere... Is going to hold the flame of inalienable rights for all people and that those rights will be secured by governments that derive their power which is just because it comes from the consent of the governed. In other words the government doesn't get to tell people what to do, it gets to protect the people's ability to uh, determine for themselves and in exchange The securing of rights does require some give and take, some balance, and some trade-off. But the consent of the governed is considered here to be part of the fundamental story. And then finally, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute a new government. So part of the American story is also that if a government becomes tyrannical, it's not American. We're not doing that. If we veer from liberalism, we have veered from Americanism. So the story of America is the story of liberalism, not just the story of equality, which is one key but component part of a bigger whole. We also have some prudence added directly in, and this is as far as I'll read uh, in the Declaration of Independence, Uh, Jefferson writes, Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. So we're not going to make rash decisions about remaking the government all the time just because the people might demand it. In other words, it's not a good idea to have just the the tyranny of the mob or the tyranny of a king or the tyranny of a cabal of uh, oligarchs or the tyranny of unaccountable administrators. And they goes on, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces the design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. So here the the Declaration of Independence moves into the process of enacting this broader story, but I want to review. The story of America is not based on simply equality. That is one of the four major points, in addition to some note about prudence in how we're going to enact these things. The first of these is that all men are created equal. The second is that they have unalienable rights. The third is that governments govern with the consent of the people. And the fourth is that if the government falls off the rails it needs to be reset. And we're not going to do that to add a little nota bene. We're not going to do that Recklessly or willy nilly. So, this is the more full American story, or at least part of it. So, you can see that the equality part is one small part of this, and I feel like it's not perfectly fulfilled, but it is amazingly fulfilled. We have come a very long way from literally slavery. We've come a long way from people who can write words like this owning slaves and realizing the contradiction, while other men found it to be one of their fundamental rights to be able to deprive the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of others for their own. We've come a long way. And I insist these principles, together with the ones we put in our Constitution, and then later in our Bill of Rights, are how we did that. But there's more to the story than just equality. And if we don't understand that, we're going to continue to do genre fiction, inverting the themes, and trying to play out civil rights battles that were sorted out in overwhelming part decades ago, and this will not work out. So the next thing that happened after the Declaration of Independence, if we skip the part about a war with Britain, who didn't exactly like this, was that we started trying to convene and figure out how these United States were going to be governed and we started to have uh, Articles of Confederation, we started to have constitutional conventions over the ensuing, I don't know, 12 or 13 years or so, I think, 13 years from Declaration of Independence of Constitution. And so, during that time, there were great discussions about federalism and anti-federalism. Federalism is this idea that we're going to be governed by the Constitution, that we're going to have a single federal document that constrains all the states, and the Federalists had a good case, but the Anti-Federalists had a good case too, that this is an invitation to tyranny. Too much federal power is going to be a problem. So they demanded a Bill of Rights, enumerating at that time 10 fundamental unalienable rights that were going to be reserved to the people, or in the case of the 10th, to the states, uh, and not put in the federal government's hands. And so we end up with this very interesting new form of government coming into play where we have not democracy, but a republic, a democratic republic, where we have representatives who are elected by a process outlined in a constitution. So it's a constitutional democratic republic. And moreover, this constitutional democratic republic tries to balance the idea of federalism and freedom. This is a very ambitious experiment. This is a very different thing. This, I think, is a very important part of how the United States has been so successful. As frustrating as it can be, especially when national politics seems to be everything we can pay attention to now because the internet has made the national or the global seem local. And so we're not only not telling the right story about what America is, it's more than that. We, we, we've forgotten that there were certain things put into place that, balances of power that are in the constitution and these these balances of power between the federal government the state governments and the individual people who again if we go back to the story of america are people who always have to consent to be governed the democratic republic process allows that consent so if we think in the words of in, in the paradigm of today we have the democrats and the republicans they're very much at each other's throats. It's very polarized. And yet we have this process that largely avoids tremendous outbreaks of violence, like civil wars, where we can all understand and believe that, okay, your guy won, my guy lost, but I get another vote in two years or four years or six years, depending on which race or election it is. And so I'll suffer things not quite going my way for a few years, and this actually works out pretty well as long as it doesn't spiral out of control and polarization like we have now. But I think the fact that we're playing genre fiction, rather than having a clear view of what the American story really is for every American, is part of why we're in this situation, because different people are telling different parts of the story. Well. The Federalists did end up getting their Constitution. We did end up with a federal government, and the Anti-Federalists did end up getting their Bill of Rights, and so this, this spirit of compromise is part of the American story as well, so we shouldn't forget that. Uh, and you can see that in the preamble to the Constitution, which I'll also read, um, just so we remember what our, our American story is about. It reads very famously, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. So the American story is we're going to have a constitutional republic that has neutral principles of constitutional law. And at the very preamble, we're going to now write down what the key parts of that, if you will, story, because that's how we contextualize and understand our country, ourselves, each other within that society. Um, Let's just write them all down, right? So in order to form a more perfect union, so this is a work in progress, that's a fundamental part of Americanism, to establish justice. And justice has to be for everybody. To ensure the domestic tranquility. Well, this genre fiction we're doing right now is not doing a great job of that. We do not have domestic tranquility. We have people setting fire to buildings and screaming that whiteness is property. And we have, on the other hand, um, people who are, are screaming about alternative facts and and carrying on uh, left and right and very partisan politics for good reasons and for bad to provide for the common defense. Well, that, that seems to be one thing that we've done fairly well. <laughs> we do tend to do that quite well, defend ourselves against at least um, foreign enemies, Uh, domestic ones. It's getting a little complicated. Promote the general welfare. Well, again, if we're going to not keep sight of what's going on, we're going to lose sight of things like promoting the general welfare, something that brings all of us together. The general welfare is the general welfare of all Americans. And so we need to have something that brings us together there. And to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. So this is the point of the Constitution. This is the point of why we have a constitutional republic. So all of these pieces come together to tell us something kind of important, I think, because this is where I've been stuck. This is why I haven't come out and tried to say, okay, my big epiphany was that we think in stories and that we have a broken story of America. And the broken story of America is that we think that the story of America is the equality part, and we've forgotten about the inalienable rights part. We've forgotten about... Uh, the um, the securing of rights in a government that is cons- under the consent of the people, and we've forgotten about the part that if the government gets out of control, um, then we need to change the government uh, so that tyranny doesn't reign. In other words, the story isn't just about equality. It's about equality, and it's about freedom, and it's about remembering that the, that the government serves the people. That's a very different story, a much bigger story. And so I, I was stuck because I was I thought, how in the world do I communicate this? And what do we do with it from here? And I haven't had any idea what to say. And so now I've thought about it for, I guess, over a month, and I kind of have some things to say. So I was actually talking with my friend Camille Foster and about this soon after I made the tweet. We, we ended up having a long conversation, a beautiful conversation one day on the phone. And we were chatting about it, and he was really captured by this idea and really talked, and I've used his phrasing already, the, the keeper of the flame. Part of the American story has to be that somebody's keeping the flame of liberty, freedom, and equality alive. We don't see equality in illiberal countries or not for long. We just don't see it for long. You can turn to China. China claims that it's a very equal country, but it is not a very equal country. It does not treat its, uh, the weaker Muslims are, of course, the most prominent example right now, uh, but their social credit system makes it so that citizens with good social credit are treated very differently from citizens with bad social credit, and in fact, they get more and more shunned. If you want to talk about uh, the issue of, of sex discrimination in China, they, this they are not a gender or sex equal country. Um, it is still many of the, the battles that feminism fought hard and won, um, despite their slogan of you know, men, women, boys, girls, we are all the same, are many of those battles have not been fought and won. Spousal rape is still kind of standard in China. Um, it's not exactly a feminist utopia, although you do have lots of women doing jobs um, in a very kind of communistic way. It, it, it's certainly not the case that, that it is, is an equal society across the sexes. And so in, in anywhere you look, this is what arises. It's very difficult to maintain an equal country. And if we want to think of equality as key to the, the, the story of liberalism, we probably should look to where to what it looks like in you know liberal societies, I didn't talk about Islamic theocracies. They aren't doing great on equality. They're just not. And they're not going to because they aren't keeping the flame of liberty and equality and unalienable rights, unalienable rights. They're not keeping those flames alive. Somewhere needs to. And so part of the American story going forward becomes somebody needs to keep the flame. Now, I want to talk for a second about Ronald Reagan. Because I think that Ronald Reagan's, as somebody who's been on the left most of my life, I've always found Ronald Reagan's popularity perplexing. And I think a lot of people on the left would agree with me. They don't understand why the right is so enamored with Ronald Reagan. And I don't want to try to answer that. And I don't want to speak from a conservative position that I don't understand. And it's not my intention here. But I do want to say that part of the reason is... Very likely to be that rather than muddling around in genre fiction, like A Great Society and so on, Ronald Reagan offered something different. Ronald Reagan offered a new narrative that looked like a possible new chapter in the American story, his shining city on a hill that's going to bring liberalism around the world. So now we don't have the story of keeping the flame, we have the story of bringing the flame of liberalism around the world. And this didn't work. It just didn't work. Under no possible analysis, looking back, at attempts to liberalize different parts of the world, in the Middle East, for example, in particular, South America, no Central America, no, no, no reasonable analysis is going to say, yeah, that worked. So the Prometheus vision of Ronald Reagan, I believe, probably inspired a lot of people and got him a lot of. Again, we think in terms of stories. We contextualize ourselves in terms of stories. So now Americans. And the post-civil rights era finally felt like they had the next chapter of the story laid out for them. Oh, we're going to bring this thing. All men are created equal. Unalienable rights. Consent to the governed. Uh, we're going to take this to the rest of the world. And we're going to create the end of history, as Fukuyama put it in 89, right after Reagan left office. Quite incorrectly, as it turned out. And part of that had, of course, to do with the the, the waning aspects of the cold war the end of the cold war but some of it is a, the story it was a new chapter it wasn't genre fiction we're, we're we're entering this new phase now where america is going to go and take americanness to the world They're like ambassadors of liberty and it didn't work and that i think accelerated because that didn't work that has put us in a place where this genre fiction has accelerated okay We don't know what our story is. We thought we did, and it collapsed. And neoconservatism, I think, solved some problems, like stagflation, quite successfully. But maybe partly by accident, maybe entirely by accident, maybe because it was partly the right thing for the right time. But it's certainly not working now. And people are certainly trying to force it to continue working now. So The Shining City on the Hill wasn't the next chapter, and that's where I've been stuck. I, don't, I didn't know what to say. Keep the flame. Camille was right, of course. He's very perceptive. Keep the flame is good, but it's not enough. And so I started thinking about the world this morning, in particular, actually. And something that's been kind of stewing in my head finally clicked into place, and I realized the world has actually fundamentally changed. And in some very real sense now, we're in a world that is not split left and right, not in the traditional sense. It is split, in some sense, along a line of globalism versus, and I want to be very careful here, not globalism. And I think this is a very crude division. I don't actually think it's a a good way to conceive of the problem. Uh, A more accurate way to phrase not globalism, depending on where you're looking, is either going to be populism, or nationalism, or a more sophisticated concept called nationism. Uh where nationism, I think we all kind of know what populism is, and we all kind of know what nationalism is well enough. Nationism is something different. Nationism is just this idea that nations should be able to exist and be sovereign, that their borders should define where their laws, uh, depending on which side of the border you are looking at, begin and end. Um, so nationism is the sense that we shouldn't necessarily be beholden to these uh I don't know larger supranational governmental bodies, and so what I realized is, wow, this is the same the same part of the story as the federalism versus anti federalism debate, and we're getting confused uh, because we're hung up on populism, which frankly kind of sucks, and we're looking at nationalism, which is very kind of you know early twentieth century and not real. I mean. There's a benign nationalism I think we should all really indulge more in. It's fun. and then there's kind of a jingoistic one that's not good. And we all kind of know that. So nationalism not coming back the way, I mean, it's not coming back in any positive form. Uh, it, I don't think. It could come back in perverse forms and that's not good. And populism has the problem that it's it's a bit it shoots a bit from the hip. Um, And the populace itself is a a very demos kind of thing in the Greek sense, which is the democracy thing, which is the thing that our founders were afraid of. And so I thought, wow, you know, interesting. So we have Reagan, who tried to bring the shining city on the hill, bring the American story, the liberalism to the world, and it didn't work. When in fact maybe it was a federalism versus anti federalism debate. And the populists and the nationists are anti federalists, whereas the globalists are federal federalists, they want to federalize supranationally, internationally. The European Union is a good example. Even these trade agreements like NAFTA or the Trans-Pacific Partnership that that came up in 2015 and 16 and hasn't been installed entities like NATO and so on the UN these are attempts to to do this and it's actually been an interesting question for me watching the UN or sorry watching the EU the European Union from afar it's been very interesting to me in that I've never quite understood why they didn't follow an American model knowing the American model worked which would be this balance of federalism and anti-federalism why don't they just have a constitution and have a very representative government Uh, And then they have a very strong, something like the Anti-Federalist Bill of Rights, that's a Bill of Rights not just for people under the uh, individual people, which is also important, or is very important, but also individual nation states within the Union. And so these mirror, obviously, in the U.S., that we have the federal government, the state governments, and the people. And like I said, at least the Tenth Amendment deliberately kicks back to the states power is not enumerated otherwise in the constitution so there is a direct nod to the states which are in a sense this, this model this so i thought wow this is very interesting because i think globalism in some sense not in a necessarily super government or any creepy thing is coming we live in a very connected world the internet is very connecting and jets are very connecting travel is very connecting this is just how the world is going to be and is going to continue to be and so some level of management which we could call governance at that level is going to be necessary but we're caught in a situation where we are not fully realizing that what we actually need is something like the story that the United States played out between 1776 and 1789 and the d- debates between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. And this struck me all of a sudden that I understand what the American story is going forward. Of course, we have the component parts and we could, you know, list them again. You know, these truths, you know, we hold to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that they governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed and so on. And we could read them from the constitution, achieve a more perfect union, establish justice and surge domestic tr- tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Okay. So we have this bigger picture American story. That's not just equality and it's a genre fiction like critical race theory, which is an inversion story, like the, uh, evil knight kills the beneficent dragon. Um, We have this this story, and we have before us a couple of options. I don't know what's going to happen with globalism, but I know that the United States could be an ambassador for this model. We could be going forward and saying, look, we're not going to make the mistakes that Ronald Reagan did and bring liberalism to the world. Shining city on the hill, and here's the fire uh, that we have. We now are going to say, I think, that we should federalize and anti-federalized just like the United States did. So there should be a Bill of Rights for nation states, there should be a Bill of Rights for um, individuals if there's going to be these national governances like the United Nations. And we think that it should follow a model very much like the United States, that there's representation and so on. And that we should have divisions of powers and the whole thing. I mean, we have a House of Representatives that represents the people. We have a a Senate that represents the states in some sense at the level of our legislature. These models work. And the United States could be, the the American story could be, this works. We're behind it. We want to keep doing it. And if you don't want to do it, we're not going to participate. And we're going to hole up and we're going to keep the flame. We're going to do this so it exists somewhere in the world whether you like it or not, but we think it would be better if we could all do it together. This is a different story, and we can actually honor the fullness of the American story, equality being just one part of that, without getting caught up in the genre fiction, by trying to shape the coming global changes in a way that enshrines and protects liberty for individuals and for nations which can remain sovereign as the next chapter of our story, it is we become the models for the world and we participate actively in that so long as it looks like we're going to be able as so long as we get to retain these ideals for ourselves. And if you don't want to let us retain these ideals for ourselves and you want to do something else, we're out. And America is going to go be great as America. This is an interesting proposition. This is a very interesting proposition. It's that the story of America, the battle between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, which ended up in a very, very productive compromise, the values put forth in the uh, Declaration of Independence, which are very core to humanity uh, in in its flourishing, and the protections and divided powers and structure, although it it could be somewhat updated, I will confess, um, laid out in the Constitution, could become the model and it's a, you know, we're keeping our flame and you're welcome to it. Here's the flame, light your candle if you want, and we're happy to help you do it versus taking liberalism off to the world in a kind of a more aggressive way. How we get people to understand the broader context of the American story, to understand how special what we have here is while we're stuck writing genre fiction on the equality story, uh, an inversion story dominating at the moment, the, the critical race theory movement dominating at the moment with the inversion of those values. I'm not sure. I honestly don't know how. But I think it's worth starting to think about. I think it's worth putting effort into considering. And so I want to kind of just close this off by saying it's time for us to start looking at the United States in terms of its story. And we need to start telling the full story, not a part of the story. And we need to start telling it proudly and feeling it and contextualizing ourselves in terms of it and saying, this is what it means to be American, get on board. And maybe, maybe we can use this as a model for the world. And if it doesn't, then we can protect it for ourselves as what makes us special and different and free. So that's my epiphany. That's what I thought about. And I think that's, the first step of the way forward.